Big Swinging Stocks acknowledges the traditional custodians of Australia's lands, skies and waterways and pays respects to elders past, present and emerging. This podcast is brought to you by SelfWealth and operates under AFSL number 421789 as general advice only. Because we can't take into account your personal objectives or financial situation, you should seek independent professional financial advice before making any investment decision. For more information and our financial disclosure statement, check the show notes. 50, 60 odd billion dollars that needs to move. We're already talking about nitty gritty. VDHG is actually the most popular stock on self wealth. We've been doing this for 46 odd years. We're not going away. I love asking questions from the community. What's Vanguard's position on cryptocurrency? It's not that significant. Was getting Vanguard to launch an ethical fund difficult? The most important investment principle that we have is that staying the course. I wouldn't even buy this for my own mother-in-law. One institutional investor snarked in 1970 when the first institutional index fund was created by Wells Fargo. In 1975, when Jack Bogle, founder of Vanguard, launched the first direct-to-consumer index fund tracking the S&P 500, people were still on the fence about index funds. But times have changed. Index funds went from being a joke in the financial community to a stalwart of people's core portfolios. 40% of funds invested are done through a financial product which tracks an index. In Australia, when someone mentions index funds, most people think Vanguard. It's no surprise then that Vanguard holds one third of the ETF market here. So we've brought in Balaji Gopal to talk Vanguard's plans for world domination. Balaji's head of Vanguard's retail division for Vanguard Australia. Pleasure to have you on Big Swinging Stocks. Welcome to the show, Balaji. Thanks for having me, Alex. I want to talk a little bit about how you got to Vanguard and how Vanguard got to where it is today before we chat about the news. So where were you and how did you end up in the role of head of retail? Well, I've been here just last month was my five-year anniversary and I came into Vanguard um, in slightly different circumstances. I knew a lot about Vanguard before coming in. I um, was a I was part of one of the big four banks, which did a strategic partnership um, with Vanguard as part of our large institutional business that we walked away from, where we partnered with Vanguard to run all of our indexed assets for um, for the bank's superannuation and advised assets. So uh, that was my foray into Vanguard. Um, I got to know Vanguard really well, and um, five, um, and then one thing led to another. I started at Vanguard as head of product strategy, building and designing our funds and our ETF um, products. And then about 18 months ago, I was asked to step in to run a retail division, but uh, it's been a lot of fun. Congrats on the promotion, first of all. But more importantly, I mean, it's a company that's reputation precedes it. I mean, it's definitely, they popularized low-cost index funds. I think that's part of your ethos, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. And increasingly, I think ETFs have really become the darling of the FIRE movement and The stats are pretty wild. Vanguard amassed $7.1 billion in net inflows, or one-third of the ETF market in Australia. And at self-wealth amongst our community, VAS is the most popular stock choice. So what is your special source? Why do you think you've been so successful at capturing investors? Well, first of all, it's really, really encouraging to see the great adoption of um, Vanguard products, but also fundamentally low-cost investing. Um, our Since our founding in 1974 by Jack Bogle, Jack Bogle founded Vanguard on the one premise of always wanting to put the investor first. Um, but fundamentally, it comes down to 
we have a, a low-cost ethos. We believe all investing should be for low cost. We believe in truly long-term investing. We think all investing should be for the long term. And and again, coming back to that unwavering client focus, these are three things I feel have, um, have really led us to being successful. I wouldn't call them a secret sauce, but if this is what it takes to be successful, then we'll take it. Would you say that that focus on the end customer and that drive to, I guess, immortalize those three pillars in their products. Is that what you would say is this Vanguard's special source? Because you've been very successful at capturing investors. I mean, it really is a a pretty incredible um, market share that you guys own. It has been, and you know, our, our focus continues to be this unwavering focus on end investors and and the advisors who support them. Vanguard is very principled in terms of how it looks at um, our investing principles. We believe that people should have goals, be diversified, you know, should be low cost, and then the importance of staying disciplined. And um, we want our products to essentially reflect some of our core investing principles, which mm. in many ways um, takes us out of participating in in certain fads and certain new upcoming trends. So we're very long-term and low-cost driven. Do you see active funds as fads, Balaji? We don't see active um, um, funds as fads. And um, funnily enough, Vanguard is one of the largest allocators of active um, equity in the world. We run about um, a trillion, one and a half trillion to two trillion in active funds around the world. In, in fact, when Jack Bogle started Vanguard, it began as administering solutions for um, external fund managers. We've had um, a number of very, um, very strong partnerships with um, long-standing, highly reputable um, those with um, you know have, who have who've been able to perform and deliver outstanding value. For the end investors, they run their um, solutions um, as active solutions. So we don't think active is a fad. We do think um, we do believe in low cost active. All investing needs to be low cost. We think um, continuing to outperform a benchmark over the long term is not something that everybody can do, and all of the research supports that. Uh, we do think that there is um, there is skill involved in being able to find these managers like a diamond in the rough, and we've had these long-standing um, managers who we've um, who we've had partnerships with through the partnership with Vanguard. We've been able to um, lower the cost of active investing and bring these strategies to end investors that otherwise might not have had the opportunity to do that. So we feel um, as there's a small proportion of active managers, and we've had some great partnerships with these managers. But we don't think active is a fact, but you know, we do encourage investors to look at costs when investing with active managers and and the long-term propensity of these managers to outperform just a very low-cost plain vanilla benchmark. When you see that, a lot of the managers um, drift away and there's only a handful that remain. And uh, and we continue to believe that it's it's your ability to highlight, find, and being able to stick with some of these active managers over the long term can prove dividends. But it's very hard in practice. It, uh, I and I think the research speaks for itself, especially as you know we have market cycles and that we're moving from. Well, it seems we're moving from a bull market into a more volatile period and potentially a bear market. And you can see that um, with that, where you do have active funds that are heavily allocated in a particular sector that may not be doing as well, we have these market cycles that that becomes increasingly difficult to kind of foresee the future. But it's also interesting to me that the cut through 
with ETFs. It's not it's not uh, ubiquitous across every generation. And for self wealth, the community data seems to seem to show that boomers in particular don't favor ETFs as much. It's only 20% of their portfolios on average. Whereas Gen Z, on the other hand, it's almost half, it's more than half, 55% of their portfolio is made up of ETFs. And that's a wide variety of ETFs, but um, at least with millennials, 10 of the top 20 ETFs that they hold are Vanguard. But I'm curious for your view, is, is there a potentially addressable market for older generations to take up index funds or particularly Vanguard products? Or why do you think that there's been a better cut through with younger generations? It kind of counters the narrative that we're risky and, you know, only buying crypto when a a large proportion of portfolios for younger investors are in fact Vanguard or ETFs generally. So diversified products. It's very interesting because unlike other markets like the US and European markets where ETF investing started off with um, large, sophisticated institutions, Australia is slightly different in that just individual investors, SMSFs and and their advisors Mm. really started adoption of ETFs and, and, and then that took off. But it's interesting because we do see a lot of older investors who who have and continue to hold a bigger proportion of their um, wealth in individual shares, predominantly mm. um, seeking income and the likes. We That said, we are seeing slowly a greater adoption of even older investors starting to look at ETFs um, as, as part of their overarching portfolio because in many ways it gives them the benefits of um, holding the 30 or 40 stocks that they hold and they're coming to the view mm. that, hey, do I really want to hold these 30 stocks and, you know, work through the administration of it? Or do I just hold top 300 um, Australian stock portfolio that for the large part has the same benefits? So one of it is just awareness, um, but it's also just um, a matter of we, we do think this trend will, the younger investors have cottoned on to the simplicity of the ETF structure, are, are diversifying away from concentrated individual stock positions. And it's more mm-hmm. a set and forget for younger investors. And it's something that we really support because we think investors shouldn't be overly focused on timing markets and you know, running and you know, tinkering with their portfolios. The impact of an investor to continue to save, continue to invest and stay true to those saving disciplines is far more likely to yield much better outcomes for them in the longer term. Than, with, um, than, than anything else. But we do find just older investors are slowly cottoning on, cotton on to the fact that, hey, ETFs could um, remove a lot of the headaches. That said, we, we do have um, invest, we, we're also seeing behaviors on the advice side of the book where investors are holding um, their concentrated stock positions or their active holdings more as a satellite and slowly looking to build a core part of the portfolio mm. that is just linked to low cost diversified yeah. products. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a trend that's slowly taking shape. Um, and as we see the wealth transition move from very old investors to the younger generation, which in the next two decades, we do st- think that this trend as, uh, as amazing as the, as the, uh, progress has been is still just, um, starting in its infancy and it's uh, there's a long long way to go. Yeah. Well, I think the the admin side is definitely something a lot of young people consider because there's so much to do. Life is busy. 
But one of the other things that I think is a challenging to grasp for new investors is the mechanics of ETFs and how it works, but also what happens. It's not just tax that is a significant uh, administrative uh, hassle you have to deal with, but it's also what happens when the companies that you're holding in that ETF undergo big structural changes. I think Vanguard um, as the ETF provider and certainly as the holder of the unit trust, sorry, as the holder of the trust, that your ETF, uh, the individual companies in your ETF are held in, they're, I'm sure, when people like Elon Musk or generally when companies go private, sort of very unusual, most companies tend to become public and IPO and get listed on the stock market. But I want to get you to explain for anyone who does hold a Vanguard ETF, or just ETFs generally, that might hold Twitter, which probably a lot of them. So Vanguard is now the biggest shareholder in Twitter, and he's announced plans to take Twitter private. That's converting it into a fully fully owned private company. But if you own an ETF that holds Twitter, what's going to happen? How exactly is that process going to unfold? First of all, by being a large index manager in pretty much most markets around the world, um, Vanguard being a large shareholder in a particular company is not very unusual. In fact, that's 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 pretty common. This is that's BAU for you place. guys. It's, it's BAU for Billionaires us. tweeting about taking companies, <laughs> BAU. <laughs> we, we take this very seriously because we don't Vanguard's holding, uh, Vanguard's one of the largest holder of some of these companies on behalf of tens of millions of investors. So we're not, we're not, we're, we're there own, as a steward yeah. of investors' capital rather than, mm-hmm. and, and the funds actually own them. And we, we, we take that very seriously. You mentioned yeah. the Twitter example, but it's pretty generic because by, by virtue of being an index manager, an index is constructed based on the market capitalization. So the, the weight and the proportion of the uh, of the, the weight of a company in the index. So, in an Australian context, the banks and the miners have a higher weighting in the Australian index. You still have, say, for example, three hundred companies, but the weight of the banks and the index, um, the mining companies, might be slightly higher, or, or 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 higher relative to the other other products on the other companies on the index. Yeah. So, if you imagine a pie. And then there's, let's say, 10 pieces equally sized of that pie. Yeah. That wouldn't be the proportion that you own the banks if you were to hold an Australian ASX 200 or 300 ETF. And in fact, um, when people say, oh, you have a lot of exposure to finance and banks in the ASX 200, as it might be, that would be because the banks have a higher market capitalization. So the slice of the pie that you own, even though you own all those companies, the banks would be a bigger proportion of the pie in Australia. Absolutely, mm. and um, and when when index providers like an SNP or an MSCI, they constantly look at the index, and as newer companies get in or older companies are getting out, we call that a rebalance event. So when these companies come out and it's um, replaced by newer companies, that typically is a, a rebalancing event for us. And we view the Twitter example as no different to what would 
what would happen in the normal course of running a large oh. index. Well, yes, we own a big proportion of Twitter today, but mm. um, the business and the operating model is no different. So um, it, that as Twitter slowly comes off, um, it'll slowly come off the index and it'll either be reweighted across everything else mm-hmm. within the index um, across what we already hold or something new will come in and then it gets, it gets rebalanced. The importance of running and um, administering these portfolio rebalances is really critical. And we have a, we've, we've been doing this for um, 46 odd years. It's not, it, it seems relatively simple. And if you have 30 stocks and if you have to just rebalance one, it might be easy. But when you have tens of thousands of securities, mm. um, the strength of your investment team, the strength of your portfolio management team, your technology operate, operational infrastructure becomes really, really critical. And we want to do this without adversely moving and impacting markets. And sometimes when you look at, you know, 50, 60 odd billion dollars that needs to move, we, our yeah. investment teams take great pride in making sure that they're moving it in a very, very responsible way. And there is a lot of investment skill that comes into play. So, Whilst indexing is a very simple concept, in practice, executing on on reasonable rebalance trades is when um, you know they they, uh, they they come they come in and they do this. There's large teams, local teams, global teams that get involved. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of discussion in doing it. So yeah, so coming back to that, Twitter coming in and coming out, it's very much part of um, BAU for us, and um, and it's part of core indexing and what we've been doing for the last forty years. So that the price per share that Elon Musk ends up buying the company for, will that be distributed as a proportion of your ownership of Twitter shares in your ETF to ETF holders? Or will you guys use those funds to purchase whatever replaces or takes up a greater share of the index once Twitter is removed as a publicly listed company from these indexes or both? It's, it's whatever the index construct ends up okay. becoming. That's what our mandate is to replace and replicate, uh, is to replicate the index. And our performance has to always track very similar to the underlying index performance. And that's, that's, mm. that's, our, that's our mandate and that's how we run our portfolio. So whatever happens in index, we will replicate that. I want to talk nitty gritty ETF mechanics. Let's get under the hood. So I think... A lot of people, when they're investing, researching about investing and making choices between mutual funds, ETFs or diversified ETFs, which are kind of bundles of ETFs or in Vanguard's case, bundles of mutual funds like VDHG or VDGR. One of the key discussion points that I see is a conversation around the relative tax drag of diversified ETFs, because diversified ETFs, as the name suggests, are ETFs, but their underlying holdings within something like VDGR are mutual funds. I'm really curious for Vanguard's perspective on this, on the relative merit of DIYing versus picking a stock like VDGR. Can you talk a little bit about the tax treatment and the differences between DIYing it and just picking the ETFs or selecting a stock like VDGR? 
first of all, this is not tax advice. And also, we strongly um, advocate against investing very specifically for um, tax outcomes. Uh, that said, our research suggests that whether it's DIY or a diversified portfolio, the differences are marginal or negligible. That said, um, if you look at what a diversified portfolio like a VDGR or a VDHE, which is the ETF version of a standard diversified portfolio, this diversified portfolio gives you access to a number of asset classes which have certain allocations, preset allocations to them. What typically happens is when markets go up or down, these allocations sometimes move away from what the intended allocation was. Um, and, um, and that could be up or down. A rebalancing event is one where you're essentially an investment manager is coming in and bringing your portfolio back in balance with that core asset allocation. So that rebalancing is important. Your question is, can an investor choose to do invest in the underlying building blocks and do it themselves? Well, there's two points there. One is um, if you look at tax outcomes, tax outcomes should be treated as a byproduct and as a cost. First of all, when people talk about these rebalancing events, we always assume that there are no transaction costs. When Vanguard does it, we have billions and billions of dollars going into these products, which are largely net inflow territory. So more money is going in than coming out. A lot of that gives us advantages in terms of how we run that portfolio really efficiently and effectively. Um, and that also largely negates the um, any perceived tax benefits of an investor doing it themselves. The second point I would say is rebalancing, whilst as a concept in theory is very simple and practice it's difficult because oftentimes rebalancing events happen when there's either in an index fund, a big stock coming in or going out, or like in markets like what we're going through now where there's big swings and gyrations happen. A rebalancing event requires two things. One is you require the processes and the, and the technologies and the operations to A, be able to do it, but also, B, you need to have an objective mind to be able to do it. If you really think about what we've seen through COVID and what we're going through now is investors are often not as objective because when markets are really going down, people generally, even the professional investors, there is a ten, there is generally a sense of worry and panic that sets in, which in which case, you know, just a rebalancing event might not exactly play out the way you intended. That's why our view is just outsourcing that decision to a to a vanguard to just rebalance that portfolio for you and run that diversified portfolio for you because it's steeped in the goals that apply to an investor um, is really important and we think the tax outcomes are marginal and um, you know if an investor can come in and ex be ultra objective and they can absolutely put these portfolios together um, maybe there is someone out there but we haven't come across that person um, for the most part we see um, hundreds of thousands of investors going into these products. Um, we also see a number of advisors um, put a big bulk of their clients' portfolios into just a standard diversified products, again, for the main benefits that it's a one-stop shop, diversified allocation, it's low cost, and it does the rebalancing for you, which means it takes away the investor tendency to react to adverse market movements. I want to talk about Ethical investing, because I know Vanguard has VSG and VETH. Is sustainability a no-brainer? Or for a brand that prides itself on tracking an index at a very low cost, was getting on the ethical train difficult? 
Vanguard believes in giving all our investors the best chance of investment success, which which means providing products that enable our clients to invest according to their values and, and beliefs. That said, from an ESG standpoint, Vanguard's done a ton of research and we do believe ESG is a long-term and enduring trend. Um, we, we think this is not going away, this is here to stay. So when Vanguard looked at ESG, um, just like we would do for any product that we look to launch, we're not just going to launch a product unless we satisfy ourselves that it is a trend that matters and is sustainable in the long term. Should it matter to investors? Does it matter to investors and should Vanguard do something about it? So on that basis, we've um, we've considered it and we, we're, we're launching products um, in many parts of the world. Europe is already... ESG in Europe has um, Europe has been by far the biggest and most advanced in terms of ESG adoption, followed by Australia and then the, and then followed by the um, US in that order. So in Australia, we've recently launched a global indexed offering with some exclusions. So where there's some notable exclusions of um, munitions and fossil fuels and and a number of other ones. We've also launched um, an international bond fund with the same exclusions. And more recently, we launched VETH, which is an Australian equity portfolio with exclusions. So again, this goes back to um, investors having a very specific um, need or desire to invest in a, in a large-scale indexed offering with a number of exclusions because that because th- that supports their own values and beliefs. We're not out there telling people what values and beliefs to have. What we've done is we've taken a standard index funds and removed by far a bulk of exclusions. We've applied a bulk of exclusionary criteria, and the resultant portfolio is what VETH is. And, and that portfolio is doing um, really well, but also the non-ESG version of that portfolio is, continues to do well. So again, it comes back to an investor preference. There are some investors who are very, very explicit about um, not investing in a product with exclusions. And we've created products to just help those clients. And even in the sort of short term, there's been incredible inflows of money into the market, which we've probably experienced a very unique bull market in the last couple of years. But I'm curious, both funds have done well. They're both index tracking. VETH excludes a number. There's a number of exclusions that are uh, removed from the product. But over the long term... Does Vanguard see these funds performing better or worse than their comparable index, non-exclusionary index? So we we don't think performance should be measured in the in the short term. It should be about the long term. But that said, um, it's really important to understand why investors are investing in these products. And what we find is a lot of people invest in these products not to get a better return outcome, but it's to conform with their own values and beliefs. That said, all our research, both here and globally, is supported that investors are not either better off or worse off, and largely the performance of an ESG and a non-ESG version of these products are largely the same. That might not be the case moving forward, but so far it, it seems there's no detrimental or significant benefits of, um, of going through this. But again, it comes back to the investor values and benefits. So we just talked about sustainable investing trends. And I'm really curious because last week we had ETF securities on the show and they actually launched their Bitcoin and Ethereum funds 
yesterday, I believe. It's the 13th of May today. So this is very topical. So I'm really curious. Obviously, cryptocurrency is on everyone's lips, but it may not be a product for everyone. And so I'm very curious, is is cryptocurrency something Vanguard is looking at launching? Not uh, with crypto in its current form. So Vanguard takes product development very, very seriously uh, in terms of everything we bring to life. It's deep in our investment principles of we want our products at the, at the highest level to be diversified, low cost, generates a, a real enduring return over the long term and to be able to be continue to be offered um, at a low cost. We're also very conscious of um, satisfying ourselves that any products that we launch will be used appropriately by clients. If I go back to the uh, point around the enduring investment merit of every offering. Um, I'll answer the cryptocurrency question, but it's not restricted to cryptocurrency alone. It's for, or it's the same rule applies to all commodities as well. So Vanguard doesn't have a gold fund or silver fund or any um, um, any single um, commodity funds. The main reason that we want all our products to generate a real return. So a return over inflation over the long term. And for that to, to be able to continue and, and keep pace with inflation and, and above. Um, that said, if you look at gold or silver, these are commodities. And I'm not here to profess a view on gold or silver per se. I'm here just talking about why Vanguard will not, in its current form, launch a product around commodities or cryptocurrencies. When we look at um, these commodities, they don't produce anything. They don't have a measurable intrinsic value that can be valued. So it means it fails our test of um, producing that real investment return over time. Cryptocurrencies are no different. And in this current market, um, the 13th of May, we are seeing uh, a lot of swings and gyrations in, um, in the cryptocurrency market. And the whole question of intrinsic value um, is coming up quite um, quite a lot. So for that reason, we've been uh, pretty clear in our views on um, on the fact that in its current form, we will not be launching a cryptocurrency product. Um, we are fundamental believers in blockchain technology, and that's something that we believe in, but we have no pro- no plans to launch a cryptocurrency product in Australia or mm. anywhere else where Vanguard operates. It's very much, as with any new technology, it's emerging, it's volatile, its use cases are still yet to be institutionally proven at an enterprise-grade level. So it's more, uh, you know, as... There should be investor caution and serious research, no matter what you're investing in, even if it's a 100-year-old product, 100-year-old company. But in the case of crypto, I think buy a a caution, as with everything, but um, certainly you have to have a strong stomach for the volatility, I think. It does seem to be the mood of a lot of other large institutions, including superannuation funds in the market. So you're certainly not alone in your position around cryptocurrency. And obviously, as with all things in investing, the future will tell what ends up happening. And I think um, to every investor, there is different products that meet their needs. And I think that's always the key thing about making products that suit your, uh, your consumers is that the right consumers will find the right products for them. And as with anything, different financial products meet different people's needs. But Balaji, it has been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, I'm. It's always lovely having you guys. 
I say it's always lovely having you guys on. We've met before, which is why I say it's nice to speak to you again. But um, thank you for joining us on Big Swinging Stocks and congratulations again on the promotion. Thank you. 